Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Hammond, co-founder of UserWise. Um, and today, I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. Cam Punia, who is the founder of Pixion Games, which is super exciting for me because I don't get to talk to a lot of other founders too often. So that's super exciting. And not only that, but you guys have kind of pivoted in this whole Web3 gaming stuff and got some really exciting stuff going on. Um, but before we dive into everything, uh, Kim, I always like to start with, you know, what's your journey? Like, what's your story? How'd you get into gaming? <laughs> yeah, an interesting one. And uh, thanks for having me on, Tom. So I guess gaming for me has always been, you know, a passion. Maybe that's a, a little cliche, but it, it really has from... When I was four years old, I remember playing on my Sega Mega Drive, or some call it Sega Genesis, <laughs> and playing Alex the Kid nonstop, probably more than I, I should have. And that's where my love of games really started. And fast forward, playing lots of games, and then I got to 14, and I, I grew up backstory in a, a very small town. Uh, it meant the summer holidays between school you're really quite isolated. So gaming was always my vice, the thing that I'd enjoy mm. spending my time doing over those six or seven weeks. Uh, and one one year when I was 14, over summer holidays, I decided, well, instead of playing games, why don't I try, you know, build one? And so wow. uh, that's what I, I did. I, I learned C++ and I can still picture, you know, how how bad that game looked but i was so proud of it uh all those years and we'd probably call it now an, an endless runner uh, but it was skiing down uh, a ski slope dodging trees simple high school mechanism and i remember after like five six weeks or so i, I built this janky style game <laughs> that i was super proud of and i begged my parents to one evening go pick up my friends so they could come and, and play this game that i'd built and We'd spent literally hours just playing a super simple game. Uh, and what was driving us was that social competition, uh, that, you know, simple high school, can I beat you? Can I beat you? Can I beat you? And I remember looking back at that day and that time thinking, I love this, you know, I love games, but I love creating this experience and creating this feeling for people. And so fortunately, that's what I set myself to do. I studied games design here in, in London. Um, I then was fortunate to join Konami uh, and work on some incredible games there um, on the design side with Kojima Productions. And then I, I learned a lot about how to build games, but still had a real blind spot when it came to you know building IP, operating, running, scaling teams. And so right place, right time, Konami were taking over the, the Yu-Gi-Oh brand, which again, I was a, a real fan of when I was growing up. So it was just a, a, a yeah. dream from my perspective. <laughs> and they gave me the role to really head up a Yu-Gi-Oh division for Northern Europe. And that's meant scaling the team, the relaunching the IP across the trading cards, video games, licensing, marketing, sales, product development, you know, everything. To, to literally launching a, a new IP. And I learned a lot there for over four years. And that was also my first taste into creating the competitive scene uh, 
uh, for a, a brand. And back then in what, 2010, 2011, uh, I think it was, we called it organized play, which now we call esports. Uh, doesn't have the, the same ring to it as, as esports, right? But uh, that's what we started to build out. And um, we set out sort of regional tournaments that then went into nationals and European and now world finals. And happy to see that Konami have taken it even further since I've left. But that was a real, I guess, the start of building that infrastructure for, for the games. Um, and as I say, learned a lot, but hadn't been in the startup life. And I guess from my own perspective, I really wanted to, I guess, test myself and an internal checkbox of, you know, do I have that resilience? Do I have the ability to come every day with a smile, but with the same enthusiasm, you know, after every single obstacle that you're, you're, you're faced with and uh, still have that same drive and passion. And so, I, I joined this uh, startup here in the UK. They were focused on building competitive games on Facebook. Looking back retrospectively, I'd say we were probably three years too late, but the founders are super passionate. Uh, and I really, really believed in sort of the mission. Mm -hmm. I was there for three years. They scaled, um, eventually shut the studio down. But it was a completely different journey to the back of Konami where, you know, it's a public listed company, 5,000 plus employees. Here we were a couple of dozen employees and every dollar had to be worth a hundred dollars, right? So you have to be really resolute, resilient and uh, uh, work for every single penny that, that was there. And so after those three and a half years or so, I really enjoyed it, loved it, thrived under, under that pressure. And that's when internally I thought, okay, I've checked all the boxes I believe I need to set up Pixian. Uh, uh, and so, you know, that brought us to where we are now and on the journey that I'm on now. Yeah. So I believe that there's this secret in gaming that like everyone has this dream of someday owning their own studio and having full creative freedom over everything. <laughs> Just, you know, being able to make the dream games. And actually, you know, something unrelated um that you reminded me of i was i was thinking about the first game that i made and i'm pretty sure that it was um it was like an, it, well? It, it, well no it was like an eighth grade i don't even know if this counts but um well math class was like very boring um <laughs> and so eventually like me and my friend convinced the teacher to let us just kind of like work through the book and work ahead um and then we did that and then she didn't know what else to have us do. So she just like gave us the, the manual to the TI calculators. She's like, just read this. And so we learned how to program those. Um, and well, I think the first thing that we did is like we coded all of the algorithms in there. So like when it came to doing tests, you could just like one click out <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then, and then we were still bored. And then we started learning how to like, we made games on the calculators. I don't remember all the games that we made on there, but it was, you know, simple little stuff like the aliens one and stuff. Nice, nice. Um, that was fun. But anyways, um, let's go back to Pixia. So um, tell me about like the founding team. Like how did things get started? Like, is it just you? Do you have some co-founders? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's just me. Uh, and I'd always recommend not to start up uh, a studio 
the sole founder. And I knew that going into it as well. Uh, for about six months, I spoke to a lot of contacts that still I, I have a really good relationship with. And I think that cultural fit, you always have to have a really strong bond with the co-founders that you're working with because you know you're you're literally in the trenches making sacrifices every day. Um, and I reached out to who I thought on the cultural side would be a strong fit, who I knew were wanting and were looking to start something on their own and told them about, you know, this is what I wanted to build. Is this something you're passionate about as well? Or is there something you're passionate about and maybe I will come along as a co-founder? Um, and the vision and what we're trying to build at Pixian really resonated with the people that I spoke to, where I think we, I guess, misaligned, where or where I saw we weren't watertight is what we wanted to do, how we wanted to scale, and ultimately what was the end goal. Some mm -hmm. lifestyle business, which you know means a very different thing to taking then VC money and uh, going on yeah. growth. <laughs> Uh, it also means you know, your risk tolerance is is very different to what we currently have here. And, and so just in terms of decision-making, we've come from very different lenses, have very different outlooks. And after about six months of not finding the, the right person, not on the cultural side, but uh, very much aligned with you know what we want to do over the next five, six, seven, eight years, uh, I decided, well, you know, jump in head first and see how it goes and like i say i always advise you to have someone else at least beside you but i jumped in uh, fortunately i had an incredible founding team that came in soon after and uh, they were just as excited about vision and passion and some of them are still here um four years on and you know they're just as Part of the, the Pixian DNA as, as I am, they're just as important to cultivating and creating that culture and uh, setting the example for all the new hires coming in. Um, since then, and, and I always knew that me being the only founder was actually detrimental to Pixian because, you know, I only know what I know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's so many unknowns or blind spots or areas that I had to work extra hard to try and get some insights into that maybe another co-founder or several co-founders would be able to cover. Fortunately, since then, it was always a goal to bring in, you know, incredible uh, leadership team. And now we, we have that. Sam, 10 years at Zepto, from the cut the rope days, built their <laughs> sort of back-end infrastructure from, you know, supporting single-player games to asynchronous games with cats and Mm -hmm. King of Thieves to then Bullet Echo and real-time infrastructure. Um, and then Tamara, incredible background as well, uh, scaled Pixonic and War Robots, half a billion plus in lifetime revenue. Went through the same journey working directly with the CEO uh, as directing the operations, so all the scaling side mm -hmm. uh, of the studio. And she went through, you know, the journey that we were going through, which was she was, I think, number 10, scaled it to 50, went back down to 20, and then went up to 150. So she <laughs> was through the peaks and troughs that it starts up life. And yep. you know, we have some incredible people now that have padded out the leadership team and do things much better than I do. 
uh, in those areas. So we're, we're in a much better place than we were when we, we first started. Yeah. So, so tell me, you know, you talked about a little bit of a Pixion vision. So yeah. What is your vision? Like, what are you guys trying to do achieve? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to change the world? (laughs) The North star for us is building these competitive multiplayer games that are mobile first, but cross-platform in this new category, we're trying to champion called lunchtime esports and before so I stop, yeah, what's yeah, lunchtime I stop, let yeah, me yeah. tell you what we mean by lunchtime esports, right? Because anytime I say that, it, it brings up so much interpretation. So lunchtime esports games for us, I guess, are really underpinned by three main pillars. And the first is a fun, core, engaging multiplayer loop. Uh, one that can be pick up and played in less than five minutes, but has a high skill ceiling. So think Rocket League sessions instead of League of Legends. Uh, And then finally, uh, skewing skill towards strategy and decision-making rather than dexterity. So naturally, that means we also tend to avoid or stay away from genres like FPS games. And then... Where would you put like a a Clash Royale into that in terms of strategy and luck and dexterity? I, I think obviously they skew quite heavily on decision making and, and strategy, right? There's multiple meta layers on what is my deck, how do these cards fit in well, and then obviously when you're in the battle, when you're facing one on one against an opponent, you've got all these micro decisions that you're making on the fly in real time. So they definitely skew heavily towards strategy and decision making. I think we probably have a bit more dexterity. Um, where it's not FPS games, you know, it, it's not as 12, 15 uh, different UI buttons that you need to get to with, and it's all about those Twitch-based controls. Uh, however, we don't skew to a point where it's as simple as drag and drop either. Yeah. Like Flash Royale. So I think there's some ingredients we take from some of those games, but... For us, it's about finding something that's relatively accessible for a mid-core player, but has that skill cap of, uh, you know, something more competitive. Cool. Yeah, so that that for us is, you know, the, the first pillar. And the second was, how do we make it easier for more players to compete? Uh, and we did a lot of research on mobile gaming now, and majority of it's just churn-inducing, right? You have to come out of the app, break that session, sign up to a tournament on another website, come back to the app, play the game. Some sites and operators require you to then go back to a website and report the result. And as you know, you know every single one of those steps, every single one of those taps and clicks <laughs> is churn. And yep. so it, it just, again, reduces uh, who will play and who will compete and who will sort of, um, I guess, partake in those tournaments. And for us was, well, how do we shrink all of this in-app? So you have the core loop, you have the meta game, you have the progression systems within the core game, but then how do we create this layer on top that with one tap or one swipe, we're in this high risk, high stakes, uh, high rewards um, environment where we have Essentially, I, I guess we call it our always on live ops, 
where we have these timed events, a series of tournaments and leagues, and they have different winning conditions, different rewards, different rule sets, uh, and importantly, all in apps. So making it much easier for more players to, to compete and try to compete and, and test themselves if they want to. Mm. Um, and then third and finally, rewards. Uh, rewards that are now powered by blockchain. That's, I guess, the pivot that we made two years ago. Well, let's let's not get quite to that yet. So, okay. <laughs> so I want to rewind just a little bit. Okay. So I remember, you know, one of the first times that we got to speak um, that, that super impressed me. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, you basically said, okay, so when we started Pixion Games, we had the belief that we want to build you know, like a hit game that's going to attract a lot of people. In order to do that, though, we have to have XYZ metrics to be able to scale it and do that. Um, and I think at this point in time, you'd killed a couple games that like by most standards of startups probably would have like kept pursuing them and whatnot because you had this like high standard. So I'm really curious, like what was your standard and like why was that important? Yeah, I think for us, obviously, we're, we're fortunate that the team we have here, you know, they've come from Square, um, Rockstar, Sony, King, Garena, uh, Tamara, you know, Nikolai, Sam. We've all worked on games that had millions to tens of millions of DAU, hundreds of millions in lifetime revenue. That was really our aspiration. That's what we know we've built in the past. Of course, that doesn't guarantee future success, as we, as we all know. Uh, but that was definitely our aspirations. And we knew if we wanted to do that, we had to be quite, let's say, ruthless when it comes to sticking to that goal, sticking to that aspirational goal and what we wanted to build and the heights that we wanted to reach. But it also meant having the, you know, the infrastructure as a studio, as a company, because you're burning lots of runway, you're killing games, killing games, killing games. From the onset, we've been very open with our investors saying, you know, it could be the first game, it could be the 10th game. What you need to do is back us. Uh, we're going to have, you know, hopefully the best practices that we always iterate on so we can try and validate the fun and, and what will scale as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and they backed us, you know, year after year after year in in our pursuit of of finding that. And that what well, that gives us, you know, the safety net to be able to go well. Let's kill this game because yes, although you know, there's always runway, there's always making that fine balance as a startup of you know, you need to generate revenue, you need to generate profit, but equally, is this meeting our aspirational goal? <laughs> Yeah. It's been easier to do that because we've had investors from the start that have been very vocal and open saying, you know, we back you guys to to find and eventually find that game that will be a category defining hit. Okay. So I think this would be a fun exercise, but can you take me through each of your games and like just take me of like why you thought it would be good? maybe where the metrics ended up landing and why it actually ended up failing, maybe like what you learned. And then like, we'll go through each of them. Cause I'm just like curious, like what was the process? What was kind of the learning? Um, and then how did that kind of work out? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a, a lot to go back through, but I'll, I'll try and condense. <laughs> as, and 
so for us, obviously, the vision was always be short cycle sessions. So we always thought if we can't prototype a core loop in less than two months, it's probably too complex. Already, you know, without the metagame, without the progression systems, et cetera, et cetera. If the core loop itself is, is just taking us this long, it's probably something we just won't be able to scale with the, the resources and the team that we have. So we always gave us that ourselves that finite amount of time to make sure we, we had something we could play. And then we always had these validation steps. And the first was always the team. You know, we would build something within those eight weeks. And then when we play it, we have to think, okay, as promise here, this this is something that we can continue to build upon. We think we can turn this into a successful game. And uh, if at that point actually we didn't have that conviction and we thought, actually, guys, you know, this this one's a dud, it sucks. It's it's not fun to play. We we're not enjoying it. There's no point continuing. Um, there's no point to build, building something that as a team you don't have conviction in. And so we killed actually multiple prototypes at that stage, probably more prototypes at that stage than we actually move forward with. Mm. Uh, if we do move forward at that point, we have a belief that it can turn into something uh, or has potential. And then we always put it out into the market, right? You know, players never lie. Data <laughs> always tells uh, you a story, generally the, the truth. And... Um, and so we always then polish that prototype into a vertical slice or an MVP, bring in, you know, several thousand players um, and then test. And at that point, it's testing the core loop, looking at, uh, I guess, four KPIs, uh, early retention, daily playtime, average number of sessions, and then something specific to the core loop itself. So if it was a racing game, it'd be number of races. If it was a... a let's say a, a football game it'd be a number of matches played etc um, and that then gives us a real health check on well should we still continue that every validation step essentially the question we're trying to ask ourselves is is this the best use of our time right now you know with with not having this infinite runway even though we have very supportive investors is it worth spending the next x months on this game because it's get, getting us closer to that aspirational goal or is it better actually to do our retrospective learn from what we've done here and then and then start again so so, that, so what happens i see a lot of games that maybe like have you did you launch any of those games that had i want to say like lukewarm metrics where it's like not it doesn't meet your threshold but it's like close enough where like in theory, if we improve and we do all the things that are on our roadmap and I know that I want to do to this game, maybe I could get to those. Like, did you have any of those situations? Yeah, so we we probably had a couple. One was internally, we called it Fight of Factions, which was a 5v5, let's say, um, I wouldn't say MOBA, somewhere across between a, a MOBA and a Battle Arena game. Um, had a lot that it lent on both those genres. Mm -hmm. um, but 5v5, real-time, various different game modes. And that one we had a lot of fun with. Uh, we saw potential. Uh, MOBA was just starting to emerge in, in I think it was 2018, mm -hmm. um, in, into the space. And we thought, okay, this is, we're on the right cusp of that wave right now where it's not a saturated genre 
Uh, however, we learned a few things building real-time multiplayer games at that point. One, it's tough. Uh, <laughs> and then two, when it came to just, I guess, validating, you have to have this incredible amount of UA support, right? Where you're constantly creating a high enough CCU or maintaining a high enough CCU. So that was that one, that was that one of the questions I had with, you know, making these games of like, how do you do that sort of testing there? It, it, it just meant we were spending way too much mm. uh, capital than we should do to validate a game or that we would want to, to validate a game at that point. Um, and we ran a couple of tests where we thought, okay, we're going to take CCU being a factor away, uh, but we still didn't get the metrics. And mostly there it was, we looked at our day three to day one ratio. So the numbers themselves at that point are important, but probably what's more important to us at that specific time of where the game state is and where the core loop is, is the relationship between the metrics. So do we have a minimum 50% day three to day one ratio? Do we have a minimum 60% day seven to day three ratio? That tells us that even if the numbers are low, we want to know those people that are playing, are they still coming back? Um, and we just didn't hit those thresholds. And so for us, that was a clear indicator that, you know, we should kill this one coupled with how difficult it was just to validate. Um, and so we started again and we built something, uh, learned a lot of lessons. Um, and then we started with some, a game called Bash Arena, which was a, a freebie free brawler mm -hmm. at that time. Brawl Stars wasn't released either. Um, so we thought, okay, this is really fun. Uh, this is something really cool. Brawl Stars enters uh, soft launch. Uh, and obviously, we, we probably both know it It went through seismic changes in those 18 months that Supercell had it in soft launch. And we thought, okay, we're, we're still creating something that's very different here. And that was probably the closest we got to going, this is the game. Internally, we were very bullish. It had really high production value. Day one, you know, it was 40 plus percent. Day three was 60 plus percent of that. Day seven, 70 plus percent of that. Even our day 30 at that point was double digits. Up, down was, you know, where we failed. Uh, and so we got to a point of, have we found a core loop that's fun? Yes. Does it retain well? Yes. Does it have engagement? Do we have enough content? that we can scale with players, that's keeping them around, that keeps them engaged week on week. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then we got to monetization. Uh, we're still not out of the woods. Uh, and monetization, we were always measuring early on, but as we started to build more features, we thought, okay, this will push the needle, push that up, down in particular. And we got to about 20 cents when in reality, it needed to be at least double. Uh, Supercell had launched by then uh, Brawl Stars or, or was in soft launch, advanced soft launch with Brawl Stars, spending a lot more capital, uh, had a lot more resource, we're churning out more updates in a more frequent manner than we were. Uh, and that told us actually if we missed the boat. Uh, but we actually gave ourselves two more tries. Uh, to try and fix and move that that needle when it came to the up down because we had such good engagement um but after those two tries 
we couldn't move the needle. We actually made it worse on one of them. Uh, and that told us, okay, we we could try for another six months. We could try for another 12 months. So what, what were some of those things that you guys were trying? Because a lot of times I, I've heard of this, I want to say soft launch hell um, that a lot of games get in <laughs> where it's like, you just feel like you're so close and you spend, you know, two to four weeks releasing something and then really nothing changes. And then it's like, we're so close and you want to try something. So like, yeah, what are some of those things that you kind of tried that you thought would maybe have a big impact, but either was negative? Yeah, so or... We had initially a, a softer approach to monetization where, you know, we weren't throwing offer walls or even a, a special offer in the shop within the first session. Uh, and that just from our perspective, you know, we weren't seeing enough player to pay conversions within those first 24, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not where we want it to be. Uh, and we believed, you know, those payers would also then have a knock-on effect on retention too. Uh, but we just weren't seeing that early traction within the first week and particularly the first 48 hours. And so one of the things we tried were those players that did stick around and had over, I think it was four sessions per day. Uh, you know, so let's say engaged players, really engaged players for the, for the first 48 hours. Let's show them an offer, something that's really juicy uh, and hopefully something that we're excited about. Uh, and let's measure what that player to pay conversion was. And we just didn't see the uplift. So to us, that then told us, well, what we're selling to players is there enough value. You know, we've created a fun game, but what's the value in them making a purchase? How does it improve the experience? Mm. You know, essentially, what is the value add? Uh, and very much there, we were trying to focus on cosmetic-based, um, I guess, monetization, which retrospectively we've now learned certainly in the West doesn't exist for mobile. <laughs> I've not seen too many games. I think there's a handful now that Genshin's probably one of the latest ones that, that do it well. But back in 20, what, 18, 19, we're seeing games that now just didn't scale as well, that didn't work. Arena Val is probably the best example I know. There are a number of MOBAs that were not scaling uh, either um, in the West, but doing extremely well in the East. Uh, and we try to push you know, the value add to players and without completely redoing the entire economy. Um, and trying not to move towards a pay-to-win, let's say, experience. And we just couldn't do it. Uh, And as I say, that iteration actually made our art down worse. And that told us, well, there's a lot of rework here for us to do. And we could try it because we've got this game that's retaining well, but equally we could spend another 12 months and be exactly in the same place. Uh, and so that's when we decided. So know. being that that was a 3v3 game, did you guys have similar like UA challenges with, you know, CCUs or did you like use some level of bots to emulate the experience? Or I, I think we had a number of things. One, our, let's say, prowess when it came to performance marketing improved um, compared to what it was in the first iteration. So we were a lot better equipped to scale than we were uh our first time round. 
two, uh, we had what we call a, a, let's call it a loser cube, probably not the right term for it, but internally it essentially meant if players would lose, uh, let's say two or three games in a row, they'd go into this queue against bots. Uh, and then once they've won two, three games, we put them back in into the um, queue to play against real players. So maybe we could circumvent players between playing against real players against playing against bots too. Uh, so a few tricks like that just meant it was easy for us to maintain a higher CCU. We also very much focused our spend and all our attention in the same time zone. So it meant we weren't having to spread ourselves thin across multiple time zones where someone's asleep, whereas someone's now active and playing. You know, all of our CCU were playing and had similar habits. We're going to work, waking up, coming back from work generally at the same time. And so we'd have the same pockets of free time throughout the day. Um, so all of that made it a bit easier for us, but even then, you know, it, it, we still then learned the lesson that actually we're spending more than we should. Uh, and since then, you know, we've, we've moved to asynchronous multiplayer, which is, you know, much, much easier to, to move forward <laughs> with on a tech side, uh, but also from uh, a UA perspective. Do you think you could get this? Because I know, like, um, I think Playtest Cloud kind of somewhat recently-ish added the ability to do um, multiplayer playtest where they, like, organize it. Everyone's on at the same hour, so you don't have to spend all this money to try to boost your CCUs. But do you think that you could do that and actually test the real engagement when those people are, you know, being paid to play like I think that's a tough thing, right? That first, there's an incentive there that they're being paid. So a player coming in, seeing you out on, on Facebook and then deciding, okay, do I spend another half an hour or am I going to churn and, and leave because this is not fun? They will not care. Whereas the Playtest Cloud player, well, I'm obligated to spend the next 60 minutes playing this game, even if I don't want to. Uh, secondly, I think just in terms of the the amount of data you get you know even if you get a couple of hundred players on playtest cloud that's going to be extremely valuable in terms of qualitative uh, data you're going to learn so much but just having i guess some statistical accuracy and belief in the numbers you have to have you know several thousand players coming in because by the time you you bake into account the churn on your day one your day three your day seven you're up to a few hundred players and already, you know, that's becoming, uh, you know, pie in the sky sort of numbers. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So back to the story. So you decided ultimately we can't get the monetization up, killed the game. What was next? So that's when, uh, you know, now we've been building several games, killing several games for a few years now. Uh, we really reassessed, okay, is this the right thing for us to do? Is this the right vision? Are we going in the right direction? Uh, and I always say internally that like your, your game ideas or the game concept might change one or two times a year as you iterate. Uh, but your business vision should change you know, every cycle, so maybe every two to three years. As the market changes, uh, you need to also adapt and 
reassess that yes we're still in the right position to win or no actually we're not and in the middle of 2020 that's when we really looked at well are we in the right place are we doing the right thing do we have the resources to win uh, and come up against you know at that time incredible consolidation that was happening in the space and continued to happen in the space uh, and that's when we really started to then look at blockchain crypto kitties at the time uh, and Axie Infinity, uh, though Axie Infinity wasn't the Axie Infinity that everyone knew in 2021 with millions of DAU as a bunch of guys that were giving out these tokens for free that eventually you know, were worth hundreds of dollars. Um, uh, and it was really interesting to see also how they were bootstrapping and building this really loyal community. I always call it the the I guess the launchpad community, where mm -hmm. you know that, that golden co cohort of players that start to evangelize everything you do in your game uh, and stick around with you for a very long time. These guys were doing that without spending a single dollar, uh, and these players were, you know, were going to war. They were creating as much content as the actual studio themselves were when it came to marketing, and so that was a really interesting case study just from a business perspective, how they were building that community and scaling that community. Um, but then we started to look at, well, mobile gaming, is this the space where we can win? We still believe in free to play. Our expertise and our core competency is still free to play. But how do we, I guess, look at other blue oceans that were appearing rather than deep, dive deep into another red ocean or, or dive deep into a, uh, our ocean that was about to become very, very bloody. Uh, and so that's where blockchain for us was really exciting as well. But our take on blockchain is, you know, very different to maybe what we've seen in the last 18 months. Yeah. Okay. So you guys decided to kind of go in on this web three thing. Um, how did you guys figure out like what, game concept makes any sort of like you know i think about like when you first started going into free-to-play right like nobody knew that clash of clans or candy crush was like so you know it's just a, kind of a blank slate canvas so how did you guys come up with like you know your bid for for fableborn yeah so i, I think first going back to that that first pillar that i mentioned uh, a fun core engaging multiplayer loop our focus was always, well, we have to find that fun first. So let's strip back everything, that minute-by-minute minute gameplay, those three-minute sessions. What is that core loop? We can build an economy. We can build a progression system. We can build a meta around it. We can look at how blockchain fits into this, if it fits into this. But first and foremost, we have to have a fun game. And, and so to do that, we actually split the team into two at that point. And it was really a race of, okay, guys, this is, I guess, the restrictions we have. This is what we want to build as a studio. This is our vision. Build your take on what you think that core loop could be. And on one side, we were building what became Fableborn. Uh, on another, we were building a multiplayer version of what I think we'd call Slave Aspire now. Uh, Slave Aspire hadn't re released back then, but I think that was 
probably the best and closest example I can give now. Um, so two very different genres, but multiplayer at the core of every experience and can be played in, like I say, these short circular sessions. Mm -hmm. We got to a point where internally we were very happy with both games, but the litmus test was always, let's put it out into a stealth launch. So the teams had a couple of months to get their builds ready, put it out uh, and see where we landed. And we had a couple of scenarios. One game team or one game comes very much in front and that's the game that we consolidate and work towards and, and try and release. Both games do extremely well. And then we have a really interesting problem. <laughs> uh, where do we go? Uh, which one do we back? Uh, or uh, neither game does well, which is another interesting problem. Uh, you know, where do we still go from here if none of these games have shown potential? And so where we eventually landed was Fableborn clearly had uh, their better metrics across the board, uh, across those four KPIs that I mentioned earlier. So, so you guys didn't do like a land sale or like a pre-game mint or any of that like typical web three stuff right no I, I think for us the concern there and it was very tempting uh even for our investors point of view when it's either ask our investors for you know a couple more million dollars or back then in what 12 months ago there were i'd call let's say pitch deck raises where teams were coming in with really nice pitch decks and Google slide docs and, and raising millions or they were dropping these profile photos or uh, heroes that had no utility yet for a game that hadn't been built yet and yep. raising millions of dollars. And I think that's one interesting way to bootstrap and, and, and get the, the funds to start building. From our perspective though, uh, our concern was that it, it really, I guess creates this short-term mentality where now you have thousands of stakeholders that all are, are pinning their hopes that, okay, this game is the one that's going to be fun, that's going to scale, that will retain players, that will monetize well, that has a profitable business model behind it. And we've only shown, already shown over the last three years, actually, it could be this game, it could not. You know, it, yeah. we could very much probably most likely this game could also be killed. Uh, and so we didn't want $5 million worth of stakeholders behind us going, well, why did you kill this game? And it'd be seen as a rug pull, uh, which mm -hmm. was, you know, and, and still is, I think, uh, a, an issue within the crypto and blockchain or, or web free space. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure that when we did ask for a, a single dollar from players, it's because one, they knew who we were, they had seen the game, they had played the game, and now when they are deciding to make a decision of, do I dive deep into my wallet because I want to spend on something, it's because they've decided actually this is really fun and there's value out here and I want to get on board rather than it be fueled by, let's say, speculation. Yeah. Okay, so... Tell me a little bit about Fableborn. Like, what's the gameplay actually like? Like, have you guys done much on like the community building? Yeah, just give, give me the lowdown. Yeah, so the best way in a sentence to describe Fableborn, think of it as Clash of Clans meets Diablo. Like that, that's the best way I can 
can give you an analogy, best analogy. Okay, you, you've you've used your acquired me. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's actually internally we came up with this idea of well, we need to have you know really deep meta because within blockchain gaming you have all these different player personas. One is a player that's emerged over the last twelve to eighteen months, where it's all about value accrual and how you then extract that value. But equally, as we know, there's several player motivations within the free to play space. You can play because it's social, because you want to compete, because you want to show off and it's vanity, you know, all these reasons why you play and spend. Mm -hmm. we, we knew we had to create, and from the lessons we've learned, we had to have a genre that allowed us to create this really deep meta that has several different player lanes. So winning to one player could be very different to a different player. Um, and so that's where we sort of came up with a genre mashing of base building meets action RPG, Clash of Clans meets Diablo. And in turn, we thought, well, what's the innovation piece here? You know, why, why does someone play this game instead of Diablo or instead of Clash of Clans? And we thought, well, in Diablo, what would the game be like if those worlds that you're raiding were all player owned, you know, all player created? Um, and we thought, okay, that, that, that's interesting that piqued everyone's interest um but let's prototype it as always and let's play test it and essentially what we built in those eight weeks was this really strong self-serving loop where like in most base building games you have this really deep meta of how am i going to build this game or how am i going to build this base uh, and within fableborn actually everyone doesn't have the same grid so your base could be very different to mine in terms of size, shape, resources available. Uh, and so everyone's got a very different playbook. Uh, you can't go on YouTube and go, well, that's the best way to just build a game, build my base, and that's what everyone copies, right? Uh -huh. And so you really have to think about, okay, what's the best playbook for the base that I have, which is very different to the base you have. Uh, so you have this deep, deep, strategical uh, gameplay on, on building your base. But the innovation piece was, okay, I built my base, I fortified it with these defenses, I've got my resource systems in place, I'm churning some gold or firepower or whatever it is for your specific base. Now I'm going to raid and I need to raid Tom because he's got Firestone and I only have Waterstone. And I need Firestone to be able to craft or upgrade a specific item. So I'm going to raid you, Tom. Uh, and rather than drag and drop units like you would in, you know, a base building game, and watch what happens here, you actually control that hero. So you decide what to attack, where to attack, how to attack. It's all on you. Uh, and one of our guests. So it's it's not like tons of units and stuff. It's like mostly like the hero, like the Diablo hero. Going exactly. What one hero, and and you're deciding. You take three into. A raid and you can choose which one essentially then you have three lives uh each time a hero is is killed you have the other two to pick from and then the other one and if you mm. lose three times that's it you're, you're out uh obviously heroes have different skills one could be range could be really squishy could be tanky and absorb damage so there's a, a meta layer of, of strategy there even before you go into the raid what's my best team what's the best group of heroes I should take in. But then, yeah, the raiding aspect, we just thought was just much more engaging. 
we, we would even watch each other play and go, well, even though you're attacking the exact same base I did, you're going about it in a very different way. You know, you're raiding from a different angle, you're raiding from a different place, you're using different attacks. You're attacking and trying to defeat a different uh, unit instead of going for the resources like I do. And so it became really watchable too, which was important for us. Um, and that became really exciting because you had this puzzle in front of you, a player's base, mm -hmm. but there are so many different ways that you could try and solve it. And that for us, just like I say, created this really engaging, uh, self-serving group. That's cool. Okay. I have a few more questions and I know we're almost out of time here. I could, I'm sure we could keep going for a long time, but, <laughs> um, so first question, um, when you were testing this model, did you guys take the time to build out blockchain and NFTs or, you know, any of that kind of stuff that went into the web three aspects of it, or was it really just the game loop that you were focused on? It, it was always the, the game loop because we knew, you know, it, it could be this game or it could be another three years and we're still searching. So before we put any of our resources, which, you know, are not, not infinite, um, <laughs> before we, we put any of our, our time into uh, this specific area, uh, you know, the, the picks in the, the blockchain rewards, how that will integrate, it always went back to we have to find that final. Fortunately, we did. We did with Fableborn. We put it out into four-month stealth launch under a different name, different store. So players had no affiliation with us, didn't care. About so the game. so you just did like a, a mobile launch fake name and you just kind of acquired users as you normally would with like Google or Facebook kind of thing? Yeah, complete blind test. And that gave us real confidence that, you know, if players were sticking around, it's because... They like the game because there's nothing else for them to go off. <laughs> yeah. And How does so, monetization work in it? Uh, monetization for us now is something that we've focused on the last, I guess, eight months. But uh, I guess a quick high level, how we see the blockchain layer or how in-app purchases and free-to-play mm -hmm. mold together. If we think of what Pixian sells to a player as a catalog of items, let's say one to ten, in traditional free-to-play, you know, Pixian sells all the items, so one to ten, to the player. In how we're looking at monetizing favorable, Pixian will sell one to five uh, directly. Uh, and those items you'll only ever be able to purchase the first time from Pixian will be the only ones that will introduce these items to. And so the only way, as I say, to, to buy them, to get them, to play with them, is purchasing from our own store within an app purchase. Of course, then if you buy that Tom from us, you can then sell it to another player. So there'll be secondary market uh, sales on our marketplace. But the first time you'd ever get access to those is, is from Pixian. And then items six to 10, the only way to purchase them or to acquire them is either one, winning them in some of our tournaments mm. or two, uh, actually having the resources to be able to craft them and, and essentially uh, build them for use. And so that's why you need to build your base. That's why you also need to raid other players' bases to get all those resources. And I smell, I smell coming in here too, yeah. Yeah, and so that's why it's really up to you then what you do with it, right? And that was important for us, whether you want to sell it, use it, show it off, or just collect it. 
what the value add to you is completely subjective and it's a player's decision. But uh, that's how we're essentially splitting up um, the monetization. And then, of course, on every secondary market sale. So if you've crafted this item, let's say a legendary sword uh, that you, you've built and now you've used it, but you've decided, actually, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to sell it to Cam. I buy it. Uh, Pixie will take a, a percentage of that sale as well. Cool. Okay. Well, and you pretty much already answered my last uh, question. In there. <laughs> um, okay. So we are on the Mastering Retention podcast. So I do have one more unofficial question for you. And that is, of course, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to increase player retention? Like, how do you keep players playing from day to day to week to month to hopefully coming back for years? Ah, one trick. Uh, <laughs> probably it's a combination of several tricks that keep them there. But I'd say one trick is not to underestimate that first 10 minutes. Like really it is the, the golden 10 minutes. And I think Google have sh probably shared some resources of how every single minute they play beyond those first 10 minutes literally adds to their day 30 retention, which over millions of players that was analyzed. And I think we took that too lightly. We were building the core loop and we thought, well, we'll just analyze the players that come in and retain, but you really need to craft uh, a strong experience, but then also craft a strong onboarding because players need to understand, you know, why am I doing this? It could be fun and they love it, great, but after two, three, four days, if they're not clear what is my next goal and what is my next goal after that and what is my next goal after that and you're not clearly not signposting it because we're not building hyper casual games but if you don't show a clear route on how to get there and then it's their decision if they want to get there or not you know it, it can really just kill your engagement and we learned that the hard way very early on and so mm. even when you're testing out those core loops uh, you can't skip scrimp on uh patui so true so true well thank you so much cam um if people do have any questions or they want to get in contact with you and learn more about pixian and anything like that is there a good way to do that yeah you'll see me floating around on the favorable discord a lot now or you can catch me on twitter camel 1987 or you know shoot me a, a message on linkedin Awesome stuff. All right. We'll get in the Fableborn Discord. Sounds like it's going to be awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Cam. Awesome, Tom. Good to catch up.